It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Joanne Lippman defied the odds and rose to the top of a male-dominated industry, news. Now, as editor-in-chief of USA Today, she says more women need to be in senior leadership positions to help boost creativity and temper risky behavior. It's common, she says, for women to experience some form of inequality at work. And in fact, I really feel that the reason the Me Too movement has exploded, it's not because every woman has been sexually assaulted at work. But it is because every woman knows how it feels to be marginalized. Today, she describes how the gender gap can be solved at work and why men are a key part of the solution. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is part of the Institute's Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Many women in the United States aren't achieving parity at work. 95% of Fortune 500 chief executives are men, and just 17% of women hold seats on corporate boards. It's good for the bottom line to have women at the helm. Companies perform better by virtually every financial measure. So why isn't it happening more often? Journalist Joanne Lippman wanted to get to the bottom of it. She went to Silicon Valley to spend time at tech giants like Facebook and Google. She visited companies like Tupperware and Kimberly-Clark and Harvard Business School where they're working to wipe out bias. And I actually spent a bunch of time in Iceland because according to the World Economic Forum, it's the number one country in the world for gender equality. And I wanted to know, what does that feel like? The result of her research is the book, That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Lippman talks with Ruth Marcus of the Washington Post about her book and a few current events. Here's Marcus. I thought I would start with um, a topic that's a little bit left field for where we're going to spend most of our time today, but it's timely and it might um, provoke some interesting reflections. I'll tell the story in case anybody has missed our insular, um, inward-focused, journalistic um, angst that's been going on about the White House Correspondents' Dinner and the joking or the roast of President Trump and his staff um, by the comedian. As we were talking about it around our table this morning, trying to figure out, I oversee the op-ed section these days, so we were trying to figure out what kind of pieces to generate about it. It started me thinking about the degree, well, not just about the event in general, on which Joanne may have some thoughts she'd like to share, but also about the degree to which gender is implicated in this. I found out um, this morning that the first White House Correspondents' Dinner that I went to in 1992 was also the first White House Correspondents' Dinner at which the comedian was a woman. Um, didn't, you know, you would think by 1992 we might have gotten there already, but um, it was Paula Poundstone, in case anybody like ever is in a trivia contest. Um, <laughs> And I've just been wondering and wanted to ask Joanne for her thoughts on whether the fact that this was kind of girl-on-girl comedy, um, Michelle Wolf versus Sarah Huckabee Sanders, would a male have gone there um, in this environment to talk about her smoky eyes? Um, are we holding, is there something that we're in the Trump administration where we hold the Trump women, the Ivanka, 
Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Kellyanne Conway to some kind of different standard? And I just wanted to sort of throw that open as a curveball first question. Sure, sure. Yeah. Thanks for throwing me a curveball right at yeah. the start. Yeah. Love that. Um, first and foremost, as a longtime journalist, I am a defender of the First Amendment and the right to free speech. So um, I, I say that in advance of anything else because I do believe we have to protect that and that First Amendment right. At the same time, a roast is supposed to have, it's supposed to be two-sided, right? The person who's being roasted is sort of in on the joke. And, you know, I think it was Ellen DeGeneres who said that a joke is really not funny unless both people can laugh at it. Um, and, and this was more like an attack. Right, well, and traditionally the president is there and the president gets to give his yes. uh, pronoun uh, intended response. So this is kind of... Right. institutionally one-sided by decision. Right, but so this was very one-sided. And um, and the other thing that I, I would say, would a man have done that? I don't know if a man would have done that. But I also think that, um, you know, would Michelle Wolf, if she were a man, have gotten the same level of criticism? It's another right. excellent question because, you know, one of the things we talk about in That's What She Said is the respect gap between men and women. And um, one of the issues inherent in that is, you know, men get the same, uh, get more respect and have more power and influence than a woman in exactly the same job with exactly the same title, for one thing. And that goes for both Michelle Wolf and Sa uh, uh, Huckabee Sanders. Um, but um, but also when women make a mistake, and there are people who believe that Michelle Wolf blew it. When women make a mistake, their mistakes are noticed more and they are remembered for a longer period of time. They are penalized more than men are. So I think it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out in her career. And is, is that your gut here? or And do you think she made a mistake? And then I promise we'll go to your book. Yeah, I... I <laughs> but I, you did a really great job of bringing in the respect gap. And it really... And it is but, but it very is, it's, it is, I central. Think key, it's central to the conversation about what happened with those two women. Is the respect gap. So um, the last thing I'll say about the correspondence dinner it is my least favorite night of the entire year. Um, I, I would love to say I think it's a, it's a, it's a great cause to raise money, um, but I think that the, it's, it's had its day. And we should perhaps think of other ways to celebrate the press freedoms. And so we shall see. <laughs> so as I was, um, you were not there. And by the way, I wasn't there. I was in... Um, New Orleans at Jazz Fest celebrating my younger daughter's 21st birthday and also plowing through your excellent book. And one of the things that I was thinking, and you and I are similar ages, and I don't know about you, but I've been thinking about the grandchildren thing a bit, though it's, I'm, I got a 21 and 23-year-old, so apparently I'm going to have to wait for a while, <laughs> is what are we going to be talking about? Are we going to be talking about this with our granddaughters? Or are they going to look at this book and say, oh, Grandma, those were the olden days, and this is an antiquated artifact? I really hope that's exactly what they say. But, but you bring up a really interesting point about the generational divide. So one of the things that I've noticed, and I've been out on the road um, for the last couple of months talking about that's what she said, and meeting with different groups of people. And I will tell you, in, 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 within the audiences, there is a huge divide between, I would say, people who are... 40 plus people who are sort of in a more managerial role and people who are 30 and under and particularly millennial and younger um, audiences, huge difference. And the, the biggest difference is that in those older groups, there's an increasing awareness 
that, okay, we now, this gender gap is a real issue. We really have to address it. But it's really man, woman, gender gap. Whereas if you look at the millennial and the younger audiences, there's a much more nuanced focus that I think is really important and really um, heartening to see, which is they are really much more focused on the intersectionality issue. And for those who are not familiar with that phrase, that term, it's the idea that um, you know, if, you are, if you are a person who belongs to more than one underrepresented group in an organization, you're facing a double bind or a triple bind. And, and it's not enough to say that you know, women aren't getting the same opportunities, because if you're a woman who's also a member of another underrepresented group, ethnic, uh, sexuality, uh, race, um, you are facing um, increased obstacles. And so we need to address that as well. And just one quickie, you know, example of that is if you look at the gender wage gap, which we've all heard the figure women make about 80 cents on the dollar. Well, a black woman for that figure is actually 63 cents on the dollar. Latina women, 54 cents on the dollar. There's an enormous gap. So there's a huge gap between us and women who, are, who belong to additional underrepresented groups. And I think it's really key. So I, I, I want to go further on the generational issue because I've been thinking about this and actually experiencing it a lot in my office as we, we, where we have women of a certain age, me, and, and a bunch of, and women uh, in, in the opinion section kind of throughout the age range, but a lot of people in their 20s and early 30s. And I've noticed what I, a different form of the generation gap, which is not just a focus on the, the intersectionality, but especially when things came up with the Me Too movement, especially around some of the more kind of, you know, it was a hard call to figure out Aziz what to Ansari. do. So Aziz, on, well, we had a huge discussion about Aziz Ansari because I kept saying, explain to me why she didn't just leave and they wanted to rip him to shreds. Um, before Aziz Ansari was the debate about Senator Franken, right. who I, my position was, could we, maybe, but I don't know, and could we have some due process here? And they were like, no, he's gone. Yeah. Done with that. So I, I'm curious whether you see, um, as, I don't know what the right word is, but they were just much more, the better way to f frame it is they were much fiercer uh -huh. than I was. Yes. The more derogatory way to frame it was that they were less, they were more dogmatic. Okay, so than I was and you, less tolerant. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so you have hit upon, I think, the other major issue between the two generations, which is younger women are much angrier um, than women of they are. our generation. Yeah, and why? And, and, and so my theory is, because I've, I've asked a lot of them. So, so first of all, I think that in terms of the, the I won't say older, but more <laughs> mature women. Um, in seasoned. Of, we're seasoned. <laughs> seasoned women like us. Um, as I, I spoke recently at an ABA conference, a conference of lawyers, and a woman who is our generation-ish um, came up to me and she said, you know what, we are the suck it up generation, right? Like, crap happens, things happen, and just deal with it, and if a guy is, you know, slap him, whatever, like, put it, you, because we entered the workplace at a time when um, we were, there weren't that many women in the workplace, 
It was male dominated and what we wanted to do was fit in. So we were not trying to change the world. Uh, we were just trying to fit into this man's world. So a lot of us were tougher. I mean, I, my nickname was the truck driver when I started as a reporter because of my mouth, which I will try and control because of my <laughs> language. Um, but we have high schoolers here, so I'll, I'll keep it PG. They've um, never heard anything. <laughs> um, but we were tough. We were tough, and we, we, we put up with a lot. And uh, younger women, I think the difference is that the younger women have grown up in a world where, you know, they are a much more equal world than we did. They are now almost 60% of undergraduates in college. Um, they're used to having leadership positions. And then they graduate, they enter a workforce where there's still this wall of institutional sexism. And they're mad. And I think part of it, they're angry at us. Why didn't we fix this already? Yeah, but I'm, I'm sorry because it seems like it should be flipped. We should be the ones who are angry because we put up with more grief than they're ever going to have to put up with. It's Aspen Ideas to go. Thanks for listening. Today's show features Joanne Lippman and Ruth Marcus. Lippman is Senior Vice President and Chief Content Officer of Gannett. Marcus is the Deputy Editorial Page Editor at The Washington Post. Last summer, Lippman spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. She was on stage with other news editors talking about truth in the Trump era. Her company, Gannett, owns national and local newspapers. At the local level, you do still see trust in the media. And that's because you've got local reporters who are ingrained in their community. Watch the entire talk, moderated by Katie Couric, on our website, aspenideas.org. Search Joanne Lippman to find the discussion. Or you can find a link in our show notes. Now back to our featured conversation. Here's Ruth Marcus. This is where I have to invite you to tell the underwear story. Oh, yes. And that does show the generational divide. So, um, so when I was a very young reporter, I, I, was, I started my career at the Wall Street Journal. And I was 22 when I became a reporter there. And one of my very first interviews was with a small businessman. Uh, he invited me to his office. I went to his office. He closed the door. He locked the door, and he stripped to his underwear. And um, I had no idea what to do, what I was supposed to do. Um, and I was terrified on the one hand, but at that time, this was before Anita Hill. Anita Hill was in 1991, and Anita Hill was the person who, who um, put sexual harassment as a phrase into the popular vernacular. But this was before then. I didn't have any words for what was going on. The only word I knew was rape. So I was like, OK, if he doesn't rape me, then I just have to deal with it. So I pulled out my reporter's notebook, and I interviewed him in his underwear. You just acted like nothing was yep. going on. Yep. Right. So. But How, what's, was, what's it, was it a good interview? What, well, what's interesting, and we actually did put it in the story. We, we put a little dig in the story that he stripped. But um, what's interesting was that the response. So I, I actually wrote about this um, after the Me Too movement happened. Um, and I mentioned this in, in, uh, in an op-ed that I wrote. And in the newsroom, um, all of these young women approached me. Young reporters were like, oh my gosh, do you have PTSD? Did you get trauma counseling? <laughs> and then. 
And then, um, and, and I will name names here, Susan Page, who's the bureau chief for, uh, Washington bureau chief, who I love dearly. Susan came up to me and she said, that was hilarious. Because <laughs> she's, she's a woman who has covered every president since Reagan. And she said, that's hilarious. Who among us has that not happened to? Right? And I think that shows well, I, you. I don't recall any underwear dropping, but, but similar. That, that's yeah. similar concept, right? You just deal with it. Well, but so then why are they angry? So, Remind me. <laughs> again, we were the suck it up generation and we were tough. We were like, and by the way, when I went back to my office when that happened at 22 and I told my boss, um, his response was to laugh. I mean, his response was kind of like, you go girl, you showed him, you were tough. And I think it was a point of pride for my boss. And so I took it as a point of pride that I had stood up to the guy. So I think that's the difference. I think that you now have young women who come out, no boss would laugh at that. A boss would call the police if that happened. Right. And so I, I think that there's a, a sense of outrage. There's also a sense of outrage that like, why is this still happening? I mean, we should be, we should be furious. Um, but, uh, but, but I think there's this outrage that, that we have, I feel like a lot of young women feel like They've come through in this equal world. They're dominating. They get to the workplace, and they feel like they've been sold a bill of goods. I think that's what the, where the anger comes from. There, there's one other generational issue that is, is relevant and that can get us back to what, whether how our granddaughters, our imaginary <laughs> granddaughters, are going to be thinking about this, um, which has to do with the role of men and millennial men. Um, because they're in a different position than, and, and this is sort of the, the hopeful piece of your book, yeah. they're in a different mindset, I think, than men of our ilk. Well, so millennial men are the most equality-minded of all of, the, of, of, of any generation that we've tracked in this way. And, we, and, I, and I have the research there, and that's what she said. But one of the other pieces of research, to, it's a cautionary tale, which is, um, there are, there's been several studies of younger men of their attitudes before and after they get married and have children. And they're very equality minded before they get married and have kids. And then after they become more conservative and they feel that their job becomes more important than their wives and that their wife should take more of the burden of the childcare and home care. So, so for those young, younger people in the audience, I would, I would urge you to hold on to your ideals. Don't let them go. So, so I know what you want our granddaughters to be thinking, this old fusty tome. What's your realistic expectation? of? Is the gender, pick, you pick your time period, 10 years, 20 years, are we going to be still having a very fraught gender conversation? So I'd actually want to pick a shorter time frame, which is mm -hmm. the next couple of years, next uh -huh. one to five years. And that, I feel, I, I have some optimism there. And, and the reason is, so I, I began writing That's What She Said. I began researching it three years ago. And, um, and, the, and the reason that I um, wrote the book in the first place is because there's all these issues that women face at work well beyond the sexual predatory behavior that, that, that sparked the Me Too movement. And in fact, I really feel that the reason the Me Too movement has exploded, it's not because every woman has been sexually assaulted at work. But it is because every woman knows how it feels to be marginalized, to be not taken seriously, overlooked, 
underpaid. Um, and, and if any of you saw the um, piece in the New York Times about Nike over the weekend and, and the toxic environment there, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. That's, that's the more common experience of women. Um, but what I find encouraging is um, that, you know, the reason I wrote the book is because women have talked about these issues amongst ourselves for years. But what we hadn't done is talk to men. And women talking to each other is half a conversation. And it's at best gets us to half a solution. And uh, right now, we're at a moment where there is, for the first time in our lifetimes, a recognition that this isn't just a girl thing. This is not a female issue. This is an all of us issue. Men are engaged in this conversation. Look at this awesome audience with men in the audience. I mean, that's something that um, we haven't seen before. So that is what gives me hope that we actually will move the needle. And is there um, any anxiety threaded into that hope? Um, because, I mean, it, your book starts with the response of a man to diversity training. Yes. And maybe you should tell that story and talk about, yes, it's real. I mean, I totally agree with you. It is fantastic that we've opened this conversation, and it's fantastic that we now understand that everybody needs to partake in the conversation. And yet. Right, right. So so actually, I had an aha moment that led to writing That's What She Said. And it was a little over three years ago. And I was on a plane. And I was going to Des Moines. And I'm sitting next to this, this man. And you, know, you strike up a conversation, as one does on a plane. And we're drinking our little plastic cups of white wine. And he was a banker. And he starts telling me about his new house in the suburbs and his kids and their sports teams. And it could not have been a nicer, more lovely conversation. And then he says, so why are you going to Des Moines? And I said, well, I'm on my way to go speak at a women's leadership conference. And suddenly, this perfectly lovely guy freezes, gets that sort of deer in the headlights look, and he goes, sorry, I'm a man. And um, then proceeds to tell me that he had just come out of um, diversity training at his bank. And he said it was like two days of hell, of like being sent to the principal's office and sat in the corner. And he felt like it was punishment. And he said that he and his male colleagues came out of diversity training, and they took away one message. And the message they took away was, it's all your fault. And I thought, what a shame, right? These are the people we need on our side, and instead they're being alienated. And in fact, I then went and looked into the research, and it turns out there's a Harvard professor who looked at 30 years of diversity training at more than 700 companies and concluded that it had failed for two groups, for women and for black men and women. And for those two groups that actually- Other than that, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, um, it worked for, for Latinas. But, um, but for other, other groups, it actually, for women, it actually made things worse. And they, in other words, they would have been better off with no diversity training at all, would have made more progress. Um, and uh, he looked at a variety of reasons for this, but one of the major reasons was simply resentment. Resentment on the part of white men who felt like they were being targeted and being told it was their fault. So what's the, what is the solution then? So I do think that there's a place for, so a lot of diversity training has now been replaced by unconscious bias training, and we can talk about unconscious bias, um, which is, but unconscious bias, we all have biases. Um, they're buried deep inside of us. We don't even know they exist. Men have them. Women have them. You can actually test your own. It's called implicit bias. There's implicitbias.net. Implicit uh, if you go to that website, you can test your own. There's a test for working women. 
I took that test and I failed it. Um, I came out as moderately biased against working women. Against women. Against working women. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we all have these biases. And the idea with, with unconscious bias training is how do we identify these biases? We all have them, so it's supposed to be guilt-free. Um, and, uh, and we just need to simply interrupt these biases. I, I don't have a problem with that training per se. What my issue that I have is that I think in too many companies and organizations that that sort of training is delegated to the HR department. And it is not, uh, and, and the HR department, I don't care how good it is, can't change a culture. The, the people who really set the culture is the leadership. So you've got to have your CEO, your chief financial officer, those are the people who need to own diversity, right? Because if they don't own it, the culture won't change. A couple of hours of going to training, even if it's good training, isn't going to change anything. Well, I mean, all these Google engineers and other um, Silicon Valley types that you talk to seem like they just kind of checked the box of going to this training right. and then forgot it that's the next of, day that they had been there. So there's a few issues there, right? One is the check the box issue, which is people say, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm unbiased. It's all good. Um, and so they don't feel like they need to do anything about it. And the other thing is the research shows, and in, in that's what she said, that, um, that actually if you believe that the more meritocratic you believe you are, the less meritocratic you feel like you need to act. So people who say they're meritocratic are less likely to act in that way. So I might get myself in trouble with this story that I'm going to share. Um, but we had actually a real world example of this over the weekend. And I think I would not have called it out were it not for your book. I was with a certain person who will go unnamed, but <laughs> he's married to a tough woman. My name is not the truck driver, but no. <laughs> And I think very proud of her. He's the proud father of two pretty assertive daughters. And we were watching television and we were watching a woman on television. And he said to me, does she have a brain? And I said to him, that is a question that I don't think you would ask if she were a man. And he was appalled. And he completely discounted every, of course, there was, there's a respect gap. <laughs> he discounted everything. He discounted that suggestion, I think, for the precise reasons of this self-perception of, of course, he's not sexist. How, how could he possibly be? Right. Um, but I'm hoping that we all, I mean, we all need, as, as you, you, this is the only test you've ever failed, right? <laughs> but we all need to take it in. Yeah, yeah, we do. And we do. And actually, so, and that's what she said. What I did is I crisscrossed the country and the world um, looking specifically for men in roles, in leadership roles, who were trying to close the gap. Because I wanted to tell stories. I didn't want to just like give you a data dump. I really wanted to tell sort of great tales about people who had you know, gone through this experience, who, who had tried to figure out, how do I fix this? I wanted to talk to them about their mistakes, about strategies that they came up with. Um, so I went to Silicon Valley, Facebook, and Google. I spoke with companies like Tupperware and Kimberly Clark. Went to Harvard Business School, which is trying to wipe out bias before those students ever reach the workplace. And I actually spent a bunch of time in Iceland because according to the World Economic Forum, it's the number one country in the world for gender equality. And I wanted to know, what does that feel like?
You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Our sister podcast, Aspen Insight, is out with a new episode. Hear from high school students who are coming up with creative solutions to tackle problems in their communities. One school in Philadelphia is using art to raise awareness about the school-to-prison pipeline. I have been almost arrested before my second week at Bartram High School because I was in a fight due to my sexuality. I'm hoping that with this, like we can just stop a lot of the fighting, stop a lot of the anger. Learn more about what the students at John Bartram High School are doing and how the Aspen Institute program, The Aspen Challenge, is helping. Find the episode in your favorite podcast player or click the link in our show notes. Here's the rest of today's episode, Ruth Marcus. And one of the things that you talk about in the book as a potential avenue for dealing with our implicit bias is to have gender-blind selection processes. So this is most famously illustrated in the remarkable examples of how symphony orchestras have been transformed through through having blind auditions where you can't see or actually hear because you need to be careful that you're not hearing the clippity-clop of their heels across the stage and you happen to have your best friend from college uh, or from growing up is uh, at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra so she's like a living example of benefiting from this gender selection, gender blind selection. And if you look, by the way, at an orchestra that does it the old fashioned way, guess what? They get old fashioned results. I'm wondering about how trans, I'm doing some uh, hiring right now myself, and I am coming up with a undiverse process, and I'm really trying to work it and make sure that it is more diverse and that there's I would there's nothing untoward going on but is that approach transferable into many many fields do you think you know it's more this is the idea of blind auditions and it's more transferable than you would think right because it's mostly been used it's been used successfully with symphonies it's been used with some technology jobs but I have I, I in the book I talk about Samantha B because um, she when she started her show, Um, wanted to have a more diverse group in the writer's room. And if you look at all of the late night shows um, and The Daily Show and all those other comedy shows um, (laughs) and even John Oliver, the writer's rooms are overwhelmingly male. And these men have generally come up sort of with the same sort of Harvard Lampoon sensibility. A lot of them know each other. And um, they've even tried them, they've tried doing sort of a blind round of auditions, but the men, they kind of know the tricks, they know what the application process should look like, they, 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 they give something that, is, that, that, um, that shows they're sort of an insider. And Samantha B wanted to do away with that, so she and her producer actually created a form and a format that was a blind format and everybody had to fill it out in exactly the same way. So there was no way to, to, to give that sort of wink that you're an inside and you know what you're doing. Um, and, uh, and she ended up with a writer's room, like most of them are at least 90% male. She ended up with a writer's room that was 50-50 male-female and one of the women, her previous job had been at the Baltimore DMV. She was, you know, giving your driver's licenses. So. The, so the, that's the um, the beauty that you can actually use it in some other in some other ways. The, the, the other thing I would say, Joe, in hiring, because I 
changed the way that I hire while I was researching. That's what she said, because one of the things I realized is that um, you, know, you have to have a diverse slate of candidates, um, and that's incredibly important. Not enough can't, uh, companies do that, but, it, but even that is not enough. You need a diverse set of interviewers, um, because otherwise, if you have a homogeneous group of, let's say, white men, who are doing the interviewing and a diverse slate of candidates, they're still, it's still not optimal. They're still gonna, they, you know, people are attracted to others who remind them of themselves. So, and, so and so be a little more explicit about how you changed your hiring. So I, what I did is I made sure you would be attracted had, to people like yourself. So what I did is I actually, um, when we had openings, I would make sure that I had members, diverse members of my team, and, and we're talking, you know, gender, race, um, ethnicity, sexuality. Like I, I had a diverse range of people who were doing the interviewing because it's so easy to have this sort of groupthink. Um, and actually that groupthink is really dangerous and that's one of the reasons why we have so few women um, or other underrepresented groups making it up to the top. There's a really um, interesting study that I, that I found that I talk about in That's What She Said that, that looks at a real life murder and they ask two homogeneous groups, one all women and one all men, to solve the murder. And then they asked a um, mixed gender group to solve the murder. So the two homogeneous groups, they had a great time working together. It was very comfortable. It was super easy. They came very quickly to their conclusion. They were very, very confident in their conclusion. And they were wrong. The mixed gender group, it was harder. It wasn't as fun. And it took way longer. And they were right. And the idea is you need those different perspectives to get the optimal result. So um, I'm going to read a little bit from a column that we ran in the Washington Post the other day. And I have to say I gave a lot, lot of thought to this column, which I hugely disagreed with, which is not a problem because we have a diverse op-ed page. Um, I wanted to make sure it didn't cross the line into so offensive you can't say it in the pages of the Washington Post, but it reflects um, the alternate kind of aggrieved white male view that I think is also present and that we have to talk about in the hiring, promotion, and general get ahead in the world um, process. So this is um, from a Richard Cohen column that got some attention in the last couple of weeks. And he writes, but when I see op-eds, such as the one recently in the New York Times that states in the headline that the Metropolitan Museum of Art should not have appointed yet another white male director, I recoil. That's just another way of saying that white and male is a disqualification. Diversity in the workplace is an overdue goal, but it can amount to a quota by another name. Choose a woman because she's a woman, and you've eliminated a man because he's a man. Please discuss. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm actually not a fan of quotas um, because I do feel well, like the, the issues that we're facing are systemic right. issues. And they start at the very, very beginning of a career. And so I think any kind of quota, um, there's a real risk of, of, of putting people in for the wrong reasons. It's not that there aren't tons of qualified women. It's that they need to, you need to have those opportunities all the way up the line as opposed to like grabbing and saying, I need this woman because she's female. 
Um, and when we talked about unconscious bias before, so th this is actually how it manifests itself. So it, there's a, there was actually a computer study, a um, computer simulation that Rice University did of a company that's 50-50 male-female at the entry level. And they program in a 1% bias against women, which is almost imperceptible. By the time you get to the top of that company, it's 65% male. So you're knocking out women at every single level. And even if you have a company, and, I, and I've heard of companies who say, well, you know, we start out 50-50 and we really promote at almost equal levels. There's only like a 1% or 2% difference at every, every level that we promote. Well, those differences magnify geometrically over, over time. And that's why um, uh, McKinsey and Lean In, who did this study, found that women are less likely to be promoted than men at every level, 15% less likely to be promoted than men. And that's why, you know, we, that's why we have to fix this systemically, not just at the very top. Right. And yet, there, he, he was voicing, and the reason I okayed the column, is he is voicing a real concern that, justified or not, accurate or not, that's extant in the world, which is that it's harder these days if you're trying to get a job or be promoted in the job, that there's actually a thumb on the scale at this point for diversity, um, both gender and ethnic. And first of all, is that wrong? And your numbers suggest it is. But second, is, is that how do we deal with this perception? Because it, it's not a healthy, that, that doesn't lead to healthy interchanges it in the workplace. It doesn't lead to healthy interchanges, but just imagine how many white men have been in, promoted and I, I have imagined that. <laughs> and you don't even have to imagine yeah. it because you know, right, how many white guys have gotten promotions who you say, wait a second, there was somebody who was better than they are and why, why are they in that job? So there's a, I mean, there's clearly a fear of giving away privilege, right, of giving up, nobody wants to give up power and privilege. Um, so I think there, that's what a piece of what we're seeing. But um, uh, I, but I also feel like, look, you know, I, I've in my career, I've been around long enough to have seen many people starting out um, behind me and seeing rock star women um, and other underrepresented groups who are rock stars. And then you start seeing people getting promoted, and you scratch your head and say, wait a second, these other people were better than that guy, and it's inevitably a white man who is you're seeing raise up the ranks. And so I think there has been, there's, there's already been a finger on the scale. I think this, is, this isn't so much putting the finger on the other scale, it's just taking the finger off that one. <laughs> Talk a little bit about, especially because we have some young women in the room, about the way in which women can help themselves. Um, because one of the things that you write about has to do with women's reluctance to, and we've both experienced it, to advocate for themselves in terms of pay or in terms of jobs, and um, and, and also just general issues of how to balance at the same time, which is related to balance, how you deal with being taken seriously, coming off as assertive, and also maintaining your likability, because you have this remarkable story, maybe you should start with it, about deciding to speak up in meetings and then getting a reaction. 
for oh, that. Oh, my own personal story. Your own story. story, yes. Oh my gosh. So so women are um, when they do speak up are actually penalized for it. And when they when they speak up on their own behalf are actually penalized for it. But the, the story in the meeting, this was like every woman's nightmare come true, which is men speak more than women do in meetings, and women are interrupted three times more frequently than men. Um, and uh, the Supreme Court of the United States was studied by Northwestern, and they found that the female Supreme Court justices are interrupted three times more frequently than male Supreme Court justices. Um, and so, as a as a you know as a young person, I um, I decided in meetings I I would I kept hearing guys say things that I was thinking that I was too afraid to say. So I so I like forced myself to speak up. And the first few times that I did it was really hard. I cannot even tell you how excruciating it was and how to. I really had to prime myself to do it, but but I would speak up, and and the first few times that I did it, I, it went really well, and the boss was like, "These are good ideas," and he was listening, and it was all great. And then one day, a colleague, a male colleague, like took me into a side office after one of these meetings, and he just said, "Stop talking," he said, "Stop talking in meetings. You're not as smart as you think you are." <laughs> It was kind of stunning, right? And it was, but what was also upsetting about it was, I, I hope thought- I he's selling pencils on the street now, I'd like to could say. Could be, could be. But, um, but what was upsetting was, I said, maybe he's right. And that's the, the devastating part of it. Absolutely devastating. Um, and, and so I, this is something that's every woman's worst fear, but it is something that, and it's one of the reasons that we don't speak up in meetings. However, there are strategies um, and I was really intent in, that's what she said, there's actually a cheat sheet in the back of a dozen things you can do right now to close the gender gap. And there are strategies that men and women can do alike that I learned in, from just talking to all kinds and interviewing all kinds of different people. And one of them that I love, it's called Brag Buddies. Um, so Brag Buddies is, um, the research actually shows us that women are better than men at advocating on behalf of other people but they are worse than men at advocating on behalf of themselves. And it's because when a woman talks about her own qualities, she's seen as pushy and abrasive and brash and all these words that are only used about women. Um, whereas men, when they do the same thing, they're re rewarded for it. So there's women at a consulting firm who I don't think knew anything about this research, but intuitively kind of figured it out. They came up with this concept of brag buddies, which is that I tell Ruth my qualifications, and she tells me her achievements, and then each of us goes and brags about the other one to the boss. And that has proven to be really um, effective, is having that alliance. Um, you guys are probably aware, this Washington audience is probably more aware of what the women in the Obama administration did, um, which is another great tactic, amplification. So. Um, you know, I think every woman in, has probably had that experience where you're in a meeting and you say something and it's crickets. It's like nobody heard it. And then two minutes later, some guy repeats exactly what you just said. Yes, show of hands. How many women has that happened to? Because I will tell you statistically that number is about 100%. <laughs> um, so the idea of amplification is um, that, uh, and the, the, the women of the Obama administration, so he had more women than any previous or subsequent administration, and, but they still felt like they were being bulldozed by the men. And so they came up with this idea that, you know, Ruth would say something in the meeting and another woman would immediately repeat what, her, what she said and would also give her credit by name. 
for it so that it wouldn't get lost. But it, it can't, so those are great strategies, but it can't just be outsourced, right? We yes. have to learn how to, you had to learn how to speak up in the meeting, how to get make your very good point, so I'm bragging on you, um, and how to do it in a way that didn't somehow, maybe there's no way to do it, that guy was not gonna be mollified by anything that you did, but to, to do it in a way that doesn't offend or turn people off without doing all the classic, and I, I do this in meetings now all the time, I might be wrong about this, yes. or you know, yes. I'm probably failing to understand something. So what's the best strategy for actually owning your own position and success and asserting yourself without being super obnoxious. Okay, two things. So first of all, it's not all on women's heads. Like this is the whole point of, that's what she said, the subtitle's really important. It's what men need to know and women need to tell them about working together. And the successful men who I interviewed for the book, they're also leaning in toward us as much as we're leaning in, right? They're understanding that, that they need to be part of the solution. But I also, I do tell women, you know, on this part about advocating for yourself, women do tend to underplay our own achievements and accomplishments. And um, one of the things that, that I advise um, women, especially young women, is pretend you're somebody else. If, if you were somebody else, how would you describe yourself? If you were going, on, going to bat for this other person who has exactly your qualifications, how would you describe them? How would you think about them? How would you talk about them? And then take that and, and, and use that to talk about your own qualities and sort of own that and yeah, and, and yeah I think it's that's incredibly important. In, in my job I get a lot of op-ed submissions and not everyone but more than you would think men send in their um, draft and they'll announce in their email, I think this is pretty good. Yes! <laughs> like, like actually I'm the judge of that, I'll let you know. <laughs> um, just you're telling me you think it's pretty good isn't going to influence the way I think about it. I have yet to see one like that right. well, from the, a woman, which is actually smart because it's obnoxious. It is obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, there, but you put pinpoint there are different ways that men and women communicate, and we do need to be, men as well as women need to be aware of this. And it goes back to childhood um, <clears throat> where girls learn how to play cooperatively. We learn how to play by like being nice and playing cooperative games. Boys learn to play with each other with games that have a winner and a loser. And that translates directly into the workplace and it translates into these different ways women communicate. Women use hedging language all the time. Like we say, I you know, hate to bother you, but this may be a stupid question, but. And the other thing we do is we apologize all the time and we are not sorry, right? So, but, so women are highly aware of this and we try and stop ourselves from doing it. Um, because we know that it appears as weakness to men. But the men who are aware of it also, you know, I think that we equally need to be aware of these different communication styles. Um, there are two things that I'd like to touch on because I thought they were so interesting. Um, one is the experience that you had provided by male boss or bosses, yeah. which were to not take no for the only answer, that you, you had become an editor, they wanted to promote, you were totally, I'm bragging on you again, you were killing it. I'll be your they, drag buddy. <laughs> they, I'll take it, accept it. Um, they wanted to promote you, and the first time you said no, they didn't take that for an answer. So that's approach number one. Approach number two is something that is really interesting, 
especially for women of a certain age, which is later in the career, the concept of returnships. Um, women who have mommy tracked themselves or dropped out of the workforce to take care of their families and finding on-ramps yeah. for them to come back. So talk about both of those, because yeah. I think they're really both really important. I think this is one of the most important chapters in the book. It's I call it the invisible women. And, and it's the idea, first of all, um, with, with younger moms, um, this happens all the time, where there are women who either drop out of the workforce or they, um, they, they, they step back, they mommy track themselves, or they get mommy tracked um, uh, without, you know, because their bosses are doing it to them. So, so the positive example I say is um, don't decide for her. And by that, I mean, so often I've been in a room where there's a job opening and someone will say, oh, Susan would be great for that job. And someone else will say, oh, you know what? She's got two little kids at home. She's, she's, she's not going to want that. Or her husband has a great job here. She's not going to want it because it would require her to transfer. And I say, be that person in the room who says, let's ask her. Don't decide. And I say that from experience because when my children were babies, I had two kids, two years apart. And when my kids were babies, I was mommy tracking myself. I was an editor at the Wall Street Journal. Um, and uh, my bosses came to me and had offered me a promotion to go run a bureau. And I said, no. Um, and, uh, but then like eight months later, there was another opportunity that came up. And they came to me again. And I said, no, again. Well, for almost five years, um, my bosses, every time a great opportunity came up that they thought I would be good for, they came and said, look, do you want to be considered for this? Um, and for five years, I said no. And then after almost five years, uh, my, my younger was in kindergarten. And, they, and my boss came to me and said, would you like to create a brand new fourth section of the Wall Street Journal? Um, and I was like, hell yeah, right? And, and, but what I didn't realize, that, that's the fourth section became weekend journal. Best section of the journal, it's great. <laughs> yeah. um, but but the, what I didn't realize until I was writing the book was how unusual that is. Because in most cases, the first time a woman said no, she'd be written off. And had my bosses done that, I wouldn't be sitting here with you today, right? My career would have been derailed 20 plus years ago. So, so the fact that they kept coming back to me is so important. And, and then, then returnship. on the returnship piece of it, so at the same time I was having my kids, I had friends and, and there are women who take off for a few years or really do want to step back for a number of years. But then suddenly your kids are teenagers and you're ready to ramp up. And these women, I'm telling you, the most ambitious, talented, smart, hardworking, got all the energy in the world, all the ambition in the world, and they are absolutely invisible to employers. It, totally, and I tell the story of actually a college roommate who, you know, went to Harvard Law School and was a brilliant, had a brilliant career, took off a number of years because she had four kids, and um, tried to get back and couldn't even get anybody to return an email. Um, and and there's so many women like this, and I actually um, there's an economist who crunched the numbers on this who said if we just brought these women back, we would it would add 2.8 trillion dollars to our economy. Just we got to get these women back in, or don't let them leave in the first place. Like give them projects or something that keeps them connected to the workforce. Yeah, I think I, that is so crucial to make our workforce, our work structure flexible enough to accommodate the reality yeah. that we're going to be, we're women, 
we're working. There may be a stretch when we're not working as hard or when we leave the paid workforce altogether. And then we're going to be back and we got lots of years of utility exactly. ahead of us. I'm just going to close by actually sharing my story of this, which is I also mommy tracked myself. I worked every um, ridiculous permutation of part-time work and I just kept and saying, oh, I'm working three days a week. Now I'm working four days a week, but I leave at three o'clock. And I kept being accommodated and good for the Washington Post to accommodate me. I think I was giving them some value back um, because my deal with them was every time there's really a crisis and you look up and you think we need Ruth, that's the moment at which I will turn up. So don't worry. And it, and it worked. And then I was walking the dog um, after my kids both left for college. And I got an email from my boss, the incredibly enlightened Fred Hyatt. And literally the um, subject line of it was empty nest thoughts. And he said, would you like to come back to help be deputy editorial page editor and run the opinion section? And it was, I like won the mommy track sweepstakes because I had a smart boss yeah. who accommodated me when I needed accommodating, and now I'm in a position where it's fine for me to work around the clock. By the way, smart boss, though, because he got you. I mean, that was that was the brilliance is saying, right? Like, it would be such a waste if they didn't go it, to the it best possible It would have been a, worse than a waste. It would have been a tragedy. It would have been. <laughs> Joanne, you want to just say a few things to um, wrap up? Um, sure. Well, I guess I would say that I think that the... I would like to end on a note of optimism because I do feel, you know, my travels um, in reporting, that's what she said, and in my travels since, in meeting with people like, like you fine folks, um, the conversations have been really great. And I actually, I was, I was telling Ruth earlier, um, the, the book started, I'd written an article more than three years ago um, for the Wall Street Journal that led to me writing the book. Three years ago when I wrote it, um, I was invited onto a, um, a television show to talk about it, and it was a show that had um, three anchors, two men and a woman. And um, the two men basically sat on their hands the entire time with that sort of, don't call on me, look on their faces, and only the woman engaged. Three years later, the book comes out, they invite me back on the same program, and this time the men were all in on the conversation. They were so excited to talk about it. There was no defensiveness and there was no awkwardness. And to me, that's progress. And that's where the world needs to be going and in our best case scenario where it will be going. And that's why I wrote That's What She Said to help us to get there. Um, well, thank you very much. Thank you guys thank you for so being much. a great audience. Joanne Lippmann's new book is That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. She spoke with Ruth Marcus, who writes a weekly column for the Washington Post and contributes to the Postpartisan blog. Their conversation was part of the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series at the Aspen Institute. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go so you never miss an episode. Follow the Aspen Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our theme music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.